from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 31st. Today, what happens to kids who cross the border on their own? How China erased the Tiananmen Square massacre and a summer reading declaration. We went out with Border Patrol, did sort of a, a ride along with them for several hours. Abigail Houseloner covers immigration for The Post. She reported this week from McAllen, Texas, one of the southernmost points on the U.S.-Mexico border. We set out while it was still pitch black in the sky. The sun had, hadn't even started to rise yet, and we headed out with them. And the Border Patrol radio chatter was already up and going. Because we only had two, uh, we, saw, we saw two runners, and... Uh, that people spotted here, people spotted there, you know, all over the place. He, he came out of the side of the driver's side, uh, and then the other gentleman was wearing blue shirt. The very first group we came to, uh, responding to some of the radio chatter, was a group of 100 people, more than 100 people. And it was entirely families, small children, you know, so the kids actually outnumbered the adults. And with this group, there were at least five children who were unaccompanied. They were on their own. There was a 10-year-old girl from Honduras. You know, she was traveling by herself. She looked exhausted. She was thin, you know, had these bags under her eyes. And she said that she was trying to get to Ohio. She said that that's where her father was. Um, There was another 10-year-old, a boy, and he said that he he was also from Honduras, and he was wearing this giant sweatshirt that didn't fit him. And, you know, he said he was trying to get to Louisiana. They had been traveling anywhere from a week to three weeks to one one kid said he had been making this journey for a month and a half. Generally, they're only carrying, the only thing to connect them uh, or help them locate those relatives are the the person's phone number written on a piece of paper. Uh, The little, the 10-year-old boy, um, he he took out uh, the piece of paper that his mother's phone number was written on and showed it to us. They come and they, they want to be found by Border Patrol, so they, you know, they will approach Border Patrol, turn themselves in, uh, and, you know, the expectation is that they'll be held and processed and, you know, somehow eventually released to uh, their families. Federal law says that, barring extraordinary circumstances, the Border Patrol is supposed to hold minors for no more than 72 hours. After that, kids are supposed to be placed into longer-term shelters run by the Department of Health and Human Services. But Abby and our colleague Maria Sacchetti found that hundreds of minors are held for longer, sometimes up to a week. And they're held at locations that were never intended for children in the first place. Kids are not being transferred out of Border Patrol custody within the 72-hour time limit. In fact, kids, a lot of kids, are staying up to a week in Border Patrol custody. And that includes kids younger than the age of 12. That's what Border Patrol calls tender age children. We're talking elementary school age kids, some really little, uh, who 
come unaccompanied and are essentially stuck in these border patrol stations for days and days. And the reason uh, both border patrol uh, and you know immigration advocates find that so problematic is that border patrol is a law enforcement agency. These aren't prisons. These aren't shelters. These are sort of like police stations on the border. So you recently got to visit a border patrol facility. W- what did you see there? So I was allowed access into the McAllen Border Patrol Station. That's the sort of accepted as the the most crowded border station or border facility on the southwest border. They see the biggest sort of traffic of people here, uh, the most apprehensions, and they're routinely overcrowded. And what it is, is is sort of, it looks like a low slung kind of, almost like an elementary school from the outside, you know, just a sort of sprawling low building on the inside. It seems very innocuous, you know, halls and offices and and so on. And, and then they have this room uh, that they call the bubble or the processing bubble. And what it is, is sort of circular. There's a, a ring of computers and they have uh, officers from Customs and Border Protection sitting at computers. And around that, they have cells sort of ringing the room. You know, in the first cell, it was full of adolescent boys, right? So they've separated out the teenage boys and they were all uh, just sort of standing there looking through the glass. How many boys would be in a cell and how, how big is the cell? So, it, you know, the cells are pretty small, you know, no more than 20 feet by 15 feet, something like that. They're small. They're very basic. So on the day that I visited, uh, the, the first cell that I saw was contained, I'm guessing, 25 teenage boys. Wow. So it was pretty crowded. You know, there wasn't room for anyone to sort of sprawl out or take you know, personal space. Uh, in the room next to them, uh, it was you know, a room the same size, and there were about seven children, uh, little boys. So they were looked like they were about between the ages of, I'd say, eight and 11 in the tender age category as the uh, Department of Homeland Security categorizes it. And then the next room... And they were in the cell by themselves? They were by themselves. And whereas the adolescents were all sort of standing around looking through the glass, the boys were for the most part curled up each on their own little spot of concrete bench sleeping. So obviously there are the short-term problems with having kids in these detention centers for longer than they should be. That They're not getting great medical care, that it's just a really uncomfortable and and difficult uh, experience for them. But long-term, what what are the potential effects of having kids in these places for so long? So as one Customs and Border Protection official put it to me, He said, you know, look, we screen people when they come in, a basic health screening. We do that. We can spot if they have chicken pox. We can separate them from the general population if they do or if they have some other disease deemed to be contagious. We can accommodate people in these sort of basic ways and for short periods of time. But as he put it, anyone, not just children, but anyone, the longer you're in a facility like this, a facility with no beds, no showers, just sort of basic concrete where they're eating sandwiches and juice boxes and having to use a, a shared toilet with very little to no privacy. 
that that's taxing on anyone and especially on children who might have weaker immune systems and be more susceptible to other kids with colds and so on, you know, in the place, and also more susceptible to being preyed upon by strangers who might be confined with them and more susceptible to being really traumatized by this strange experience of essentially being held in something like a jail as a child and maybe not really understanding what's going on. What needs to happen to change the conditions for these kids who are coming across the border unaccompanied? So it depends who you ask. This pressure on the system has got a lot of different government agencies sort of quietly pointing the finger at one another. Customs and Border Patrol officials, you know, complain that it's Health and Human Services that's not taking these kids quickly enough, that they're responsible for the delay. Health and Human Services has said that well, no, it's Border Patrol that's processing too slowly or they make mistakes and, you know, we have beds. They also say the children aren't our responsibility, technically under the law, until they actually are delivered to our custody. So you, you have a very complex system that lawyers and immigration rights advocates, advocates would say never really ran particularly well to begin with. That is just overwhelmed right now. And that's really putting a lot of stress on the system. And so there are folks in Customs and Border Protection who say the law needs to change. One Border Patrol agent who I was driving around with said back in the 90s, they had huge numbers coming across the border then too, but it was mostly Mexicans. And under U.S. law, it's much easier for Border Patrol to just turn around and deport Mexican nationals. Now, the vast majority of people coming are coming under very different circumstances. They're coming from Central America, where they're fleeing extreme poverty, drought, uh, and violence. And they're coming up here with the intention of seeking asylum uh, and finding a way to stay. And children in particular cannot just be released onto the street The government is required to give them the opportunity to seek asylum and also to find safe housing. Abby Hausloner covers immigration for The Post. On Thursday, President Trump announced his new plan for dealing with the surge of Central American migrants seeking asylum on the border. He's threatening to place a 5% tariff on all goods entering the U.S. from Mexico, unless the Mexican government stops people from crossing the border into the U.S. A lot of people ask me, what do we know about democracy? We live in a communist totalitarianism. That's very true. We didn't know much, but we do know democracy through lack of democracy. It was quite clear to me right from the start that anyone writing this kind of book would have problems continuing to work as a journalist in China. When you see this, like something that is so different from what you're learn your entire life. Like It takes a long time to actually process it. My legacy probably will be 
that guy standing in front of the tanks with the shopping bags. 30 years ago, on June 4, 1989, the Chinese government cracked down on protests in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. It started as a student movement full of hope. It ended with hundreds of demonstrators dead. And the Chinese government has all but erased the massacre from its history books. Around the world, many people witnessed that moment through the eyes of Jeff Widener. Well, I was the Southeast Asia picture editor for Associated Press based in Bangkok at the time. He took a photo that became iconic, an unidentified protester standing in a face-off against tanks rolling in. The man in the photo became known as Tank Man. It's the typical David Goliath moment. The demonstration started in late April. They were led by university students. And it was incredible because, you know, you see this goddess of democracy statue that they were building, which is basically a replica of the Statue of Liberty. And it's facing off directly across the street from the great Mao portrait at the Forbidden City. And I think everybody was feeling this, um, this wonderful feeling that they really hadn't experienced before, which is basically called freedom. And I think a lot of the reporters that I spoke to, we all just found it hard to believe that the, the government was allowing this to happen, that the students and the protesters were, you know, basically camped out and uh, well, well organized. They had food lines. They had mechanical printing presses running all the time with, you know, freedom of the press. And it was just, just extraordinary. One of the three most prominent student leaders was Weir Kaishi. I was 21 years old. I was in uh, Beijing Normal University. We were living in a time that China was moving toward a more open direction. We felt it's quite promising. We thought through our action, we can alter, we can push forward China in the root of this history development. So we are also very happy that we are also feeling excited that we are writing history. So with that kind of joy and with that kind of uh, hope. Well, the first time I noticed that, uh, I guess you could call the tempo had changed was in the evening of uh, June 3rd. It was quite late on June 3rd, I would say around 10 p.m. The People's Army came face to face with the Chinese people and was stopped in its tracks. I noticed there was something burning in the street, and it was another armored personnel carrier, and it was moving very erratically, and there were protesters chasing after it. They were throwing uh, things at it, putting big steel pipes into treads, and I reached in my pocket. I had a Levi jacket at the time, and I was looking inside for my other lens, and I couldn't find it. And that only left me with a wide-angle lens. So I literally had to get so close that I was part of the story. You know, it was really uh, very scary uh, because I was worried that this vehicle was going to explode. I pedaled back to the office, but it was difficult because there were steel barricades everywhere. There were burning buses. Then I noticed that there was a sound of gunfire in the distance. As I passed by the Tiananmen Square, I noticed there were red tracers flying over from the distance, they were arching over Tiananmen Square. And I was thinking to myself, why are they shooting off fireworks? And it was only after a small 
grain, grain size speck hit me in the face. It was very small, and I realized it was large caliber machine gun fire. And I guess that kind of kicked me in the high gear to reality. And then I, I started pedaling as fast as I could, and I finally arrived back at the AP office, which was uh, located at the diplomatic compound, because they had all the journalists kind of rounded up in this area. And as soon as I got in the office, Mark Avery was filing a picture of a dead protester that had been crushed by uh, some kind of armor vehicle. And he said, don't go back out there killing people. The world know what happened later. It's a massacre. There's no other word to describe. June 4th, there was a massacre in Beijing. Uh, hundreds, if not thousands of st- people, uh, students and civilians died uh, in, that, uh, in that day. As a, like every person in China, the parents always tell you, don't talk about politics. Yacho Wang works for Human Rights Watch. In 1989, she was a baby. And she says that she didn't learn anything about the massacre in Tiananmen Square until after high school. I was admitted to the university, and there were three months between high school and the university, and there was nothing to do. So I spent a lot of time in the internet cafe. And I just, um, like, just... Randomly, by chance, I got to know about, uh, about Tiananmen. I don't remember exactly how I got to know, but it definitely was that some gra- very graphic photos of the event that, you know, there were blood, there were guns. So that was really shocking. I would say, like, it takes several years to process it, to understand the context, the background, why the students went to the street to protest what they were asking for. Uh, you know, who, uh, why, did, why did the government respond in that way? And how did the people, f- you know, feel about this? Why nobody talked about it? Why I didn't hear anything until, you know, after I graduated from high school? So those are all the questions I had. And, you know, I'm still looking for answers. It just shows how successful the Chinese government can be in erasing episodes from history. Louisa Lim is a journalist who worked as a foreign correspondent in China for years. She's the author of a book, The People's Republic of Amnesia, Tiananmen Revisited. When I was writing it, I became quite nervous. I became quite paranoid. I just got really worried um, that I was being watched and surveilled. And so I worked under conditions of quite intense security and I wrote the book on a laptop that I kept uh, locked in a safe in my bedroom that didn't go online. I mean, the biggest revelation in my book was the last chapter, which was about the events that happened in Chengdu, which is um, in Sichuan province. And there had been a crackdown there as well. And people had died at the hands of the government and the government had admitted it. And I simply hadn't known any of that when I had started the reporting. What the Chinese government did was at the beginning, there was kind of no way to censor what had happened because it had been seen by so many people. So instead, what they did was trying to capture the narrative. So they, a Chinese government put out an awful lot of its own propaganda, which set the story, not that this was a popular movement, but these were counter-revolutionary riots. And in Chengdu, there was this uh, slim propaganda booklet that was released. So at the beginning, right after 89, you could still find out what had happened. There was still, you know, a lot of government propaganda out there. But then over the years, bit by bit, this has disappeared. You know, now if you wanted to find 
that propaganda, you would not find it in any libraries or bookshops in China itself. You know, it's disappeared completely from sort of public circulation. When Louisa talks about what's happened in China since 1989, she calls it the great forgetting. I mean, the great forgetting is the idea that the collective memory, the institutional memory of what happened in 1989 has all but disappeared. Uh, Occasionally, I think twice in the last 30 years, there have been these incidents where material related to 1989 has appeared in Chinese newspapers by mistake. And in one case, um, in 2009, there was this newspaper called the Beijing News, and they ran this very famous photo by a Hong Kong photographer, Liu Hongxing, of students with bullet wounds being rushed to hospital on the back of this flatbed bicycle. And, you know, the reason that this picture ran, it was next to a profile of the photographer. And the reason that it ran was because no one recognized it. No one knew that it was to do with 1989. So no one realized that they should censor it. And, you know, if you think about that, that's quite astonishing because think about how many people a newspaper page goes through. You know, you've got the photo editor, the page editor, even the censor. (laughs) nobody recognized what this was, so they didn't realize they should censor it. So I think that's what the great forgetting is. You know, the great forgetting is where there's simply this, as George Orwell put it, a memory hole, which has swallowed up the events of 1989 wholesale. Yacha Wang, the student who learned about Tiananmen on the internet, she said that she fears that young people today wouldn't be able to find this information even if they knew to look for it. You know, when I uh, started to, you know, surf the internet, the internet was relatively free. I was able to Google. I, I'm, I was able to read the New York Times, read the Washington Post. I mean, I got a chance to read stuff that a lot of people who are now in college cannot read anymore. You know, on the one hand, the internet is less free. People don't get to access Western newspapers. But at the same time, there are more entertainment. So a lot of people, their attention got distracted to like things that are not sensitive, but also interesting to young people. You know, you have the short video, TikTok, or some, some you know, interesting but non-political issues. So people are not aware there's something that is lacking. There's something that they don't know. That is really frightening, that you don't know that uh, there's censorship. You don't know there's, you know, stuff that you don't know. Video producers Kate Woodsum, Joy Sharon Yee, and Josh Carroll collected the series of remembrances of the massacre in Tiananmen Square. You can find a link to their project, including videos and photos and audio and reflections from each of the people interviewed here at postreports.com. And now, one more thing from fiction book critic Ron Charles. So over the years, I hear from so many people who burden their summer, or worse, their children's summer, with this deadly reading project. You know, they begin from some puritanical impulse or misdirected ambition, and then they drag themselves through the whole steamy months with this enervating sense of duty. 
I'm thinking of books like Anna Karenina, War and Peace, Infinite Jest, Moby Dick, uh, the Lyndon Johnson Mantel's Wolf Hall trilogy. Big, heavy, difficult books. And I just want to scream, enough! This is not a test. You, the, the summer reading will not be on the exam. You don't have to improve yourself or you don't have to impress anybody. You don't, you don't always have to succumb to the tyranny of the book club or the predictability of the bestseller list. You know, you can just read what you want. And if you don't know what to read, you can go to the library where there are these remarkable people who spent years training in understanding people's tastes and how books are organized. And you can tell them things you like. I'm talking about librarians. And they will recommend other books for you that you'll enjoy. Or, through the great process of serendipity, just wander around a bookstore and, you know, experience some accidental discoveries that you might enjoy. Which brings up another point, and that is this puritanical sense that having started a book, it must be finished. You know, that we learned as you know, I don't know, in middle school, like making our bed or shoveling the driveway or doing the dishes. A book shouldn't be a chore like that. Just because you started the book doesn't mean you must finish the book. In fact, if you're not enjoying the book, the book's already taken a few hours of your time. Why give it more? I mean, that's like the the general that says more must die because so many have died so far. That's ridiculous. Back up, you know, retreat. Find a different book that you'll like. The summer should be a time of exploration and fun in your life and in your intellectual life, too. And you shouldn't burden it with some sort of expectation about what the summer reading book must be. Ron Charles writes about books for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Muhammad, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.